I, I want us to sense um, the, the power of God's conquering love. It's not a mushy concept. It's a powerful, fierce concept. And so that's where we're going to head beginning um, March 12th. And I will be in with a group of guys in Ecuador um, two weeks prior to that. And I didn't want to start it ahead of time. So with that said, I have a couple of um, standalone messages. And um, this particular one is Psalm 79. And I, and I pray that you'll find this encouraging. Um, it is a, another psalm of Asaph, um, and I, I, I think you'll um, find his resolve and his uh, fruitfulness uh, amidst the difficulties of his life um, encouraging and helpful for you. So Psalm 79, Psalm 79, let's see here. There we go. Let me just pause and pray. Gracious Father, I thank you for, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, calling us together as your people. We're thankful for, Lord, that you are, um, that you have grafted us into an ancient people, um, the people of Israel by faith, that you have made us members of your own household, that we're not aliens or strangers but we're your sons and daughters um, because you paid the infinite cost of, of our redemption, and we, we thank you for that. Father, I pray in the spirit of, of how we started this morning that we would be present here, that we wouldn't be worried or distracted by what takes place an hour from now, two hours from now, or this week, but that we would have the, the, the space settle our hearts before you, and to hear you speak. And that's what I pray for more than anything, Father, is that you meet with us through the word, um, that this word is not supposed to be um, something that is merely intellectual, but something that is deeply spiritual and powerful and, and transforming. So in these moments we have right now, Father, I just pray you settle our hearts. Let our ears be attentive to what the Spirit says to the church, the 21st century, to Parkway. And if there's areas that need change, I pray that there would be change, areas of confession that we would confess, um, areas where we need you to be um, God over an aspect of our life that we've perhaps kept you from. I pray that we would surrender that to you. But do your work this morning, Lord, as we uh, gather around your word in Christ's name. Amen. I think I speak for most of us when I say that uh, most of us don't like drama that much, right? I know that there are the proverbial drama queens and kings who kind of like to stir things up and, and for whatever reason they feed on drama, but I think most of us would rather avoid it. You know what, and you know what I mean by drama? It's the stuff that makes life difficult, uh, conflict, uh, belly aching, um, Sometimes it's just horrible circumstances. Sometimes it's things in marriage. Sometimes it's things with children. Sometimes it's things with church. Um, but there's just this drama, and I think most of us like to avoid drama. At least I, I hear that a lot. It's like, just want to avoid the drama. Um, it's interesting, too, though, to watch how people respond to drama, right? Um, those things that make life less than perfect. Uh, there are, there are um, a number of different responses that you can have to drama in your life. And again, it can be in your marriage, your family, or your church. 
um, one, one way of responding is, is, is kind of be one of those uh, fleers, not like flea is in the bug, but flea is in escape, right? You don't like drama, and as soon as you experience drama, like you're out, like you bug out, you, you, you jump shit, you pull the ripcord, whatever you want to say, you're just, you're done, you leave. And that's, that's, that's one response that people have to, to, to drama in life is that, that you, you bug out. Another response is, is we might call them the shutdowners, right? In the middle of drama, you just kind of shut down, kind of go into a shell, maybe cocoon yourself into a, a bit of a discontented, cynical state because of the drama around you. But as a result of that, you no longer reach out, you, never, you don't put yourself out there in relationships or service, you just kind of become a living zombie, right? Just kind of, kind of there but not alive, and I've seen people respond that way to, to drama. They shut down. That's one of the responses that people have, uh, both, like I said, in, in almost any context, marriage, family, or church, or, or work, shut down. Then there are the others who might, we might call them the reactors, right, who in the midst of drama just get all upset and sometimes make mountains out of molehills, love to get angry and frustrated and make things worse, really, the kind of people, and we're, we're, we're familiar with that kind of overreaction, you know, when people unfriend you because of who you voted for for president, right? It's like, seriously, that's like going to be the reaction? Not, of course, that that happened to me. It didn't happen to me, but I've heard it's happened to people. But that's, those are some of the responses that people have when, when, when there's drama. It's just you either leave, you shut down, or you overreact. Now, how is it, if, if you look at your life, during times of, let's just call it drama or hoopla. There's another good word, hoopla. It's just all the fuss. How is it that you typically, characteristically respond? Are you the kind of person who would, if you need to pull that up or whatever, you can. I Just, okay. Um, are you the person who just shuts down? Typically overreacts, gets angry? Person who just like, leaves, bugs out? I, I asked those questions of myself. I, how is it that I respond? Sometimes my temptation is, some, is, is to shut down. That's what I can do. But I don't think the Lord would have us, in terms of drama, shut down, or leave, or overreact. How is it the Lord would have us respond in the whole drama of life? And mind you, um, the question isn't if there will be drama. Really, the, the, the issue is when drama happens, because it will happen, right? <laughs> I mean, um, both in my limited life and in people that I've known and had tell me their stories from 5 to 95, is that the drama never ends. As soon as one drama's over, another one takes its place, right? It just keeps coming like waves on a beach, and, and it's just, it's there. It's on, constantly there, and the reason it's there is because you're a sinner, and even if you escape, you, your sin follows you, and the drama follows you. And unless you're going to be a hermetic monk that is living all by yourself, chances are you're going to leave and go to be with other sinful people, and there will be drama wherever you go because you're with a bunch of people who are sinful people. So it's not a question of if, it's a question of when the drama happens, how are, you, how are you going to respond? And I believe that the Lord would have us be people who are fruitful in the middle of the drama of life. Fruitful in the middle of the drama of life. And that's part of the challenge of the psalmist in Psalm 79. Now, I'm going to warn you up front. Um, I think of Asap as, a, um, as, a, as the dark poet. Um, not because he's like Edgar Allan Poe and has kind of a warped mind, but, but because he lived in a time where things were hard. 
You know, sometimes God puts his people in times where there's uh, prevailing peace. Like if you were to live in the time of Solomon, King Solomon, you would have enjoyed peace and prosperity. But Asaph didn't live in that time. He lived in a time um, of the demise of the Jewish nation. That is, he lived in a time in which God's judgment and wrath was, was poured out on his own people. And he was there to see it. That's why he is the dark prophet or the dark, dark poet. And he writes about it in the form of a prayer. And I'm going to, there's three movements in this prayer. Uh, he starts with his complaint. It's not a complaint as in he's whining at God, but he's just expressing what's happening around him, what his eyes see. And it's hard. It's devastating. That's movement one. The second one is he contends with God in a petition to resolve it. And then he closes the psalm with a resolve of his own, what he's going to do. And that's the high point. So it goes from kind of dark to light. That's the shape of the psalm. And he starts with his, if you will, his prayer by expressing to God what's going on around him. And it's, it's dark. This is how he starts. 79, beginning in verse 1, he says, Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Um, they have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the, listen, if you're not reading it, listen. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry? Forever? Those verses are, 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 are vivid, gruesome, and graphic. This isn't hoopla. This isn't just drama. I think we would categorize this as, as Holocaust. God's sacred temple, sacred to the Jewish people, sacred to God, has been defiled by pagans. The sacred city of Jerusalem, where, where, where the Lord, like, set his name to be known, is in ruins. The people, described as servants in the faithful of God, lie slaughtered around with no one to give them the dignity of a burial, so exposed to the elements and exposed to the animals and exposed to the birds. And the people of Israel have become a taunt. That is an object of ridicule. It's a horrible place to be. A horrible place to be. And yet he understands that this isn't an accident. Because he says, will you be angry with us forever? He recognizes what he sees around him and all the carnage is an act of God. An act of God, an act of judgment. Lest we think that God is overly angry because... Those kinds of things, when, 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 for our 21st, American, for 21st century American mind, we, we tend to think, wow, that's really harsh of God. Like that he would bring about this kind of devastation to his own people. And I think a piece of why we don't fully get it is because we think too much of ourselves and too little of God's holiness. It's simply recognize that like when... when Two things with regards to wrath is that, you know, in those sneak previews of, of the wrath of God when it falls in the Bible, um, that God is fully justified 
in wiping out an entire planet of breathing, living beings in a flood. Or in a moment of time, vaporizing two cities. And those are just previews of, of God's hatred of sin. And again, lest we think God mean, we have to recognize that even with his own people, that this didn't happen, this happened, what, 6th century B.C., that even when it happened, it happened after centuries and centuries of God in a merciful way pleading with his people, like, turn from me. I, you, we, we read Deuteronomy just a little bit ago. Like six, seven centuries before, he's like, listen, you're going to turn away from me, and if you turn away from me, death. You can hear the heart of a loving, merciful God saying, come back to me, don't do this. And even speaking through the prophets, like, this is what's going to happen, and they did not listen. So this kind, of, this kind of outpouring of God's anger followed centuries and centuries and centuries of God's patient, merciful calling to his people. And they just wouldn't listen. And, and then this is where he is, this time of national judgment and outpouring of, of, of God's wrath. And, and yet he's just... What is he doing with it? He's doing the right thing with it. He's expressing his, the devastation, the pain, the carnage, like he's bringing it right to the Lord. He's, he's not shutting down about it. He's not growing angry at the Lord about it. He's, he's not um, deciding, hey, you know what? There's no way that a good God could let this happen, so I have decided I don't believe in him anymore. He's not responding this way in the middle of Holocaust. Rather, he's bringing all of it, all, all of the, like the broken stuff, all of the, all of the hard stuff, all of the difficult stuff. He's laying it out on the table and saying, look. Now, that's, a, that's, a, that, that's, that's a, a, an honest kind of prayer, right? We talked about that last week. This is being completely and utterly honest with the Lord about the, the carnage and the difficulty of life. This is being honest with him about the drama. Right? And that's how the Lord would have us deal with life when it comes at us, when drama when it comes at us, the hoopla when it comes at us, or worse. You and I have both known people, some of you might even be here, where you just find yourself in a very difficult place. You're not in a time of relative peace, you're in a time of a difficult place, you know? Um, lady I know, uh, daughter, adult daughter tries to commit suicide three times. Great Christian mom whose daughter's doing this, and it's just like, what do I do with this? Like, lay it out before the Lord. Lay it out for him. It's just like, Lord, I didn't sign up for this, but this is what I have. What, what do I do with this? That's 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 part of part of what it takes to be fruitful in the midst of drama is being really honest with the difficulty and the devastation of life with the Lord. You're not stuffing it down, you're bringing it out, right? That's, to me, that's psychologically healthy, is for us to bring it out, but not to people, but to the Lord, ultimately. This is, that's the first part. That's the first movement of the psalm. This, this, is, this is deeper than just your ordinary drama of life. This is a tough place to be. And how is it then, after laying it out, that he does respond in terms of his prayer? Well, if you go on, you realize that he contends 
not, not in a sense of defiant contending or defiant um, fighting with God, but, but, but he contends in prayer um, for God to resolve this, to do something. Just to pan back for a second, like this, this psalm is not only um, an example of prayer, but it's an example of a person who's fruitful in the drama of life as recorded in his prayer. So he, he responds this way. This is his contention. The first one just laid out his complaint. Here's his contention, verse 6. He says, pour out your anger, and, and he follows two things. He's pleading for justice, and he's pleading for mercy. Those two things. He says, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you. They, they, they don't even call on your name. They don't worship you. They worship other gods and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Verse 7, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Uh, do not remember against us our former iniquities. This is now the plea for, for, for compassion and mercy. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die and return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. As contending with the Lord, asking him to judge the nations for vengeance seven times. You want to know what to do with anger over injustice and naturally to have pagans. I mean, God uses evil means to judge his people. Is he's asking for the Lord to, to, to avenge? That's, that's, that's what we're supposed to do when we're angry about something is, is not to take vengeance ourselves, but to recognize there is one who can and should and does it rightly. And he's praying for this in prayer. At the same time, he's saying, will you atone for our sins? Will you deliver us? Will you offer mercy and compassion? Now, I just have to say, it seems a little bit hypocritical, this part. Because he just acknowledged that that God's angry with the Jewish people because of their sins. And he's asking for mercy and atonement and then judgment on the other people. I mean, both categories of people, whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew, are sinful people deserving of God's wrath. So why should he plead for justice for the one and mercy for the other? Seems, feels, does that make sense to you? No? No, no, you don't get it. Okay, that's good. (laughs) He's just acknowledged that they're under the hand of God's judgment because of their sin. And now he's asking God to judge the nations because of their sin, and by the way, pardon us. See? It's kind of like, I know I'm a sinner, Lord. I know I screw up, and I know this person hit me. Will you bring down their house and have mercy on me? Just, or maybe feel a little bit more, okay? Let me just say on the surface of it, it it seems a bit um, hypocritical, but this goes deeper. Um, This goes deeper into the very truth, into the core. That what he's doing is he is praying and contending in prayer according to God's character and his promises. 
The reason I say that is because of two distinctive phrases in here. When he's saying, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. In other words, the glory of your name is at stake in what's happening here. And then he says it again. He says, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. It's like twice he's talked about the glory of his name and his name's sake. He knows that something is at stake bigger than just the people. It's God's reputation. It's his name. Or let me just put some some, uh, backstory on that. You know, when when, when God showed his, his, his glory to Moses, his glory, same word is here, right? Glory to Moses. He declared his name. Their glory and name are slammed together in Exodus 34. The glory passed before Moses and God proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, God of mercy and graciousness, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, uh, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. In other words, part of the glory of your name is your merciful, gracious, loving character that you actually forgive. So if you don't forgive and you don't show compassion, it's like denying part of your glory. So he's not just, this goes deep into the very character of God. His contention with God is by drawing attention to the character of God, all summed up and connected to his name. Or in addition to that, that, that the Lord, when he promises to Abraham in Genesis 22, that I will bless you, I will multiply you, I will give your enemy's gate as a possession to you, and I will bless the nations through you, I will do this by swearing by my own name. He swore by his own name, I will bless you. That's the promise. So what he's doing here is he's praying according to God's revealed character and his promises. It's like saying, Lord, you promised. You know you can't break your promise to us. This is your, who you are. You've shown yourself to us as, as a God of steadfast love and mercy. Your, your glory is wrapped up in deliverance. You see, that's... That's, that's deep. He is, he is praying God's promises and his character back to him. Moses did the same thing. Contending with the Lord. Make good on your promises, God. I don't know if you ever made promises to your kids, but one of the things kids do is they remind you of your promises, right? Man, I, this is, you're going to think I'm a horrible dad after I tell you this, but I, um, we were sitting in our hot tub late last fall. It's 100 degrees. And it was really cold out. It's super awesome. 100 degree water, bubbles. It's cold out. The pool next to us is 49 degrees, right? That's like, what, a 51 degree difference? And I, I, I made a dare. I, my youngest, he's, he was 10. I'm like, buddy, Isaac, I will give you five bucks if you'll jump into the pool. Like from 100 degrees to 49 degrees. And my third one, he, he, he likes money. 
He walked off the end of the diving board, and he jumped in. And he shot out about as fast as a rocket, <laughs> right? And he got back in the hot tub shivering, and he said, Dad, you owe me five bucks. I said, I know. I didn't give them to him that night. And so the next day, he said, Dad, you owe me five bucks. You promised. And he asked me the next day, too. It's like, you know, that movie, Better Off Dead. It's like, I want my $2. I want my five bucks. And it's, he's just reminding me over and over and over again. Give me the five bucks. I finally gave him five bucks, right? I made good on my promise. And, you know, it's, it's part of that in our prayer life. We're, we're not reminding God of his character or his promises to us because he's forgetful or doesn't remember. But it's a way of centering ourselves on what is, where our hope is found. You know, that, that our hope, and, and by, by way of saying the glory of your name, Lord, this is who you are, steadfast love and mercy, and at the same time, Lord, you promised is a way of centering all of our heart and hopes on what God has given to us in way, by way of promises. And you know what's interesting is that the psalmist recognizes atonement doesn't come from a sacrifice of an animal. Uh, it doesn't come from, from anything we do. He says, you atone for our sins. And what you realize is that really what he's praying for, the mystery between God's perfect justice and God's promises of eternal steadfast love and forgiveness can only be resolved in one place, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ, where he would be slaughtered in place of us. Like, that God himself would slaughter himself um, to both satisfy just justice and unleash his mercy on us so that we could be forever forgiven. That's what he's praying for, ultimately, is resolved in the crucifixion of Jesus, of God's atoning work on the cross, right? Just didn't have, couldn't see how it was going to be resolved. We have the benefit of actually knowing, God, you did resolve it. And now we, we plead God's promises and character on the basis of the cross. It's like, Lord, I, I don't know exactly what's going on here in my life, but I'm trusting the promise that you work all things together for good on the basis of what Christ has done for those who love you and are called. And I'm holding on to this thing, and I'm going to tell you about it over and over again in my prayer life, that I know and believe, and I'm holding you to the fact that you are going to work it out. Or to hold to the promises, and the Lord, you have promised to protect me as my keeper from evil. And ultimately, when death comes walking my way, I know you will deliver me ultimately from death because you promised. This is your character. That's, you know, he laid out his complaint. This is what's happening. Now I'm, he's cont he contended with the Lord, re referencing his name tied to his character and promises. And then he gets to this last piece, which is the high point, is there is a resolve. There is a final resolve. He says, but we, your people, that's after all, everything he said about all the birds and, and the carnage and so forth, and then contending with God about his name and the glory of his name and so forth, he says, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. 
That's cool. In other words, even with all of the drama and contending in faith because of your character and your promises, we will continue to praise you and to give thanks for you in all generations, at all times. We're going to continue to do, no matter how dark it is, we're going to continue to praise you and give thanks to you. That's a resolve, right? That, that's a resolve. And it's not just, you notice, if you're looking at your Bibles, this is where words are important. He doesn't say, I will bless you or praise you. He says, we will. We will. We, the collective believers that still exist, we will give thanks to you. We will recount your praise. We. One of the, and this really comes from the surrounding context. You know, we have a bunch of Psalms of Asaph, you know, the dark poet. Even in the midst of this, he is doing what God called him to do, which is writing prophetic poetry. He's being fruitful in the middle of the chaos. And he's giving to the people of God prophetic poetry that gives them hope. That steers them through the the Holocaust into the the grappling with the character and the promises of God. Ultimately to the resolve that we're going to trust you. That it's all going to work out. And we are going to give thanks to you. And we are going to praise you. And as we're going to continue to live fruitfully despite the drama. There's a, sometimes we as Christians, and that's, that, those, that's, that, that, that really is the, is the main encouragement, right? Is that if you trust that God's character is this, and you trust his promises are true, and you're not going to trust in how you feel, or you're not going to trust in your ability to understand the scope of God's great works, sweeping works of judgment and salvation, in which case you judge that God is harsh or he isn't there. But rather, if you're willing to trust God and his character as revealed and trust his promises are true, then you can resolve by faith that I am going to go ahead and continue to give thanks and praise no matter what. That's, that's the encouragement. Not to trust how you feel about the situation. That'd be pretty gloomy. Not to trust in your judgment of God that how could God do this. But at the end of the day, based upon how God has revealed himself in history, I am going to give you thanks and praise in all generations. Or we will give you thanks and praise in all generations. Don't think for a second that, man, I'd really love to live for God. I love to serve him with my life but I just need to get through this drama first. You know what? Ain't never going to end. Because one drama is going to end, and then another one's going to come. And you're going to find yourself at the end of your life knowing, wow, I actually could have given of myself in the midst of the drama, not wishing that I could get past it so that I could be fruitful. And that's part of the, 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 the beauty of the psalm. Fruitful in the midst of it. Not after it, but fruitful in the midst of it. 
and to live a life that praises and blesses God regardless of the circumstances. And, and I, I fully and completely believe it's, it's possible to do because I see it. I see it in members of this congregation in ways that deeply encourage me. Um, Adam came into my office this last week and he told me a story of somebody here in this congregation who will remain nameless. I, I shall keep nameless, anonymous. Um, of, 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 of a brother in here who, who's, uh, I don't think he's here in the service, but he, he went through the drama of not having work for the better part of January. And when you have a number of kids and a wife and you don't have work for the better part of a month, that's, that's, that's drama. And what he chose to do in that time of drama without work is to go and use his skills and his abilities at another family's house in our church who couldn't afford his services. And so he showed up day after day after day helping this family in this period where he had no work. And wouldn't you know it, there are unbelievers connected with that family that looked on and said, wow, like in the midst of not having work, you just kept showing up and serving? What? Thank you. And this brother said, you know, don't thank me. Thank the Lord who cleared my schedule so I could do this. And you know what one of those unbelievers said? It's like, man, that guy's a God man, isn't he? He's a God man. A believer, unbeliever saying about somebody from Parkway, that's a God man. Because in the middle of his drama of not having work, he's being fruitful. Don't waste the drama. Be fruitful in the middle of it. And that, that testifies to the world that there's something bigger that we serve something bigger that we love, and that's God himself. So my encouragement to, to everyone here is uh, don't wait for the drama to be done because it'll never get, get over, not until Jesus comes back or we die. Um, but rather, endeavor to praise God, give thanks to God with your life, verbally and with the works that you do. And, uh, and people will see it, and they'll know something's different about you. That's my encouragement is be fruitful in the drama. Don't wait for it to end because it's not going to end. Father, we pray for um, that spirit in us. Um, we want Fairfield and desire Fairfield to be a, a better place and our neighborhoods to be better places. And that comes when your people who are called by your name are willing to live and love and serve in the name of Christ and for the sake of others um, in the midst of difficulty and drama. And I pray for that for us. And, uh, and if there's some here who are in the middle of something difficult, I, I pray for not, not only the grace to survive it, but the grace to see you in it and the grace to um, testify to your goodness even in the midst of suffering. So, uh, Father, we thank you. We love you for first loving us in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>